listening to World Class from the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Baltic states, that is Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, have become leaders in Eastern Europe. At the Stanford University Libraries, former president of Estonia and CSAC affiliate Tomas Ilves and FSI director Michael McFall explained the surprising success of these states and talked about ongoing challenges posed by Russia. Well, it's great to be back here. And um, I mean, I've given a couple of these talks here on various topics, but I thought, you know, you know looming over everything is always, uh, more and more these days, has been sort of the whole issue of security, geopolitics, where we're going, and while, uh, you know, all this other stuff that's wonderful in terms of digitization and integration and European Union. At the same time, it's no secret that um, people are probably more worried about security uh, today than they have been for a long time, and since probably somewhere in the middle 19, 1980s when, uh, uh, when there was, uh, with a sigh of relief, uh, so the West really sort of said, okay, now we're, we can, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the Soviet Union, but basically it's moving in a positive direction, and the last several years we've seen kind of the opposite. Well, out of the collapse of the Soviet Union, as, uh, as Mike Keller just mentioned, that actually three countries that had been, had been uh, annexed and occupied, uh, that were and made a part of the Soviet Union reemerged as independent countries uh, reemerged, I said, reestablished their independence in uh, 1991. And since then, if you look at the uh, the trajectories, the very different trajectories of the countries that uh, all emerged from what was the Soviet Union, then there is not a doubt who has done best. Uh, I mean, it's not even relative to the, uh, relative to the countries that have been taken in the Soviet Union, but in fact, uh, especially today, if you look at much of, uh, in fact, almost all of the uh, post-communist uh, members of even the European Union today, I mean, countries that were not even incorporated in the Soviet Union, but were, simply, um, well, I mean, basically colonies of, of the Soviet Union, uh, or we call the Soviet bloc. Even there, uh, we have, uh, these three countries have done uh, better. I mean, economically, they've done better, certainly in terms of maintaining liberal democracy. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we've done better because We've been so great, but the other ones have been not so good. But <laughs> it's always compared to what, right? <laughs> but in any case, certainly, uh, you know. I mean, I mention this just because uh, because we're small, we get less attention. But I mean, there's a sort of a, there's a there's a plethora of articles all about. Well, has Eastern Europe gone down the drain? As Europe, you know, Eastern Europe is reverting to type and all this stuff that we find kind of offensive in our region because, in fact, we like to think of the other way around. And, but in many ways, I also, I think, I always, I always point this out uh, that in, um, in 1938, which was the last year 
in which you could measure GDP. It will last full year before the war, and so you look at GDP per capita statistics, then, um, then Finland and Estonia had identical GDPs per capita back then, and Latvia was ahead of Finland and Estonia. Uh, I always have to say that because my wife's here. She's laughing. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so when you if you start from that position, then you look at um, yeah. I mean, that was pretty. We were kind of despairing in 1992 when we looked at that. You know, you had the same GDP as Finland, and in 1991, Finland has a GDP per capita per capita is the same GDP per capita as Finland in 38. And in 1991. Finland's GDP per capita was 13 times higher than ours, wow. which gives you an indication of what Soviet rule can do to you. Yes. I mean, uh, well, I mean, since then, we've, uh, you know, we're narrowing the gap, but I guess it was about 2002 we achieved the GDP, in Estonia, GDP per capita in Estonia, 2002, what Finland had in 1991. So that shows quite a big advance. Mm -hmm. It gets a little complicated with the mathematics, but you know we have to talk about all this uh, just to make sure that show that we're doing okay. All right. So in all of this, and on top of that, I mean, as successful liberal democracies, as among the more wired countries in Europe, and sort of uh, taking the lead on on a very uh, slow to digitize Europe, um, and together with the Nordic countries, we are doing rather well, except we have this other new, uh, new dimension coming in, has come in, which was that as opposed to, say, the optimism of the 90s and the kind of sort of, um, I guess, kind of neutral feelings of the, uh, of the aughties or noughties or whatever you call 2000, the 2000s, then the last seven years, or at least, you know, probably since 2008, uh, Russia, the big player in, in, all, in sort of all of Europe and in general in the world, has taken a very different course. And it's quite kind of, I mean, it, it's kind of the spoiler in all this, because this, what otherwise would be or should be kind of a great positive story, you know, people, the, the old narrative, give people a chance to be free and they will, they will opt for liberal democracy and they will opt for free markets and they will thrive, I mean, which may hold in our countries, but is not holding certainly in Russia and also not holding in some other countries. So I just thought that since you are sort of the, one of the great experts on Russia today and you've one also- One of the great past experts. <laughs> Well, no, you've I'm, also seen. No, I'm a director of a big institute. I, I do other things, but no. But I, you I, I have followed things. But closely. you have seen it up close and personal, and in a way that most academics do not, because generally academics don't get harassed and don't get beat up, uh, sort of day day after day by Russian media, and you do. So, I mean, you have a you have a fairly unique perspective on this uh, sort of. Pers having personified the United States basically for uh, for a number of years in Russia, and you continue to be an object of of uh, vituperation and calumnies. Well, uh, that's true. Uh, that's all true. Follow me on Twitter if you want to see it. Um, uh, first of all, thanks for having me with you. This is a great honor to be with President Ildis. Um, I never. I said two things in my email. One, he's the expert on this, so I'm just doing color commentary here. 
Uh, I'm his wingman, as uh, Steve Bannon said about the president uh, uh, in this conversation. So I, I really, in terms of the, 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 the topic, I really want to defer to your expertise. But I do know something about the, the periphery uh, of where you're at. Uh, the other thing I just want to say, uh, when I first got back from the government in five years, every single day, I wore a suit and tie on campus because that's what I was trained to do. And it's taken me a long time to calibrate what the cultural norms are around here. So I was, I was delighted to see that you did not have a, a bow tie on today because uh, I didn't quite know what to, how to dress. So you also have uh, recalibrated to your, your uh, geographic uh, cultural milieu here at Stanford. So, um, so let me say two kind of broad things, and then we'll talk maybe more about specifics, again, that you know better than I. Uh, but without question, it's always been my view, going all the way back to uh, you know, my first visit to Tallinn in uh, 1985 in the Soviet Union, uh, that um, uh, ge geography matters, neighborhoods matter. Bad neighbors have bad consequences for countries, including the data you just uh, described. And for people to forget that, as sometimes Americans do, uh, at least in my teaching here, uh, because we are so far away, I think that's a big mistake. Um, and second, and this is going to be more controversial, and I want to dig into this. Um, uh, geography, history, culture matters, and the, and the lines between cultures are clear, and in your neighborhood, especially in the Baltic uh, region, uh, that is very pronounced. And at the same time, regimes matter. And democracies versus autocracies, communist dictatorships versus partial democracies matter uh, in terms of the threat. Uh, and I used to believe that more firmly than I do today. I want to be honest with you all. And that's kind of what I, I want to hear your views on. Because I used to firmly believe uh, when I was uh, writing and then living in the Soviet Union in 1990, 91, I was there as a Fulbright scholar, uh, but also uh, mucking around with democratic opposition forces, uh, including Estonians and Lithuanians and Latvians who were also uh, in Moscow from time to time. Uh, I remember very vividly, in fact, I just finished writing a book uh, called From... I was going to plug that later. Okay, well, I just sent, sent in the latest rounds of edits on Monday, uh, and uh, very vividly remember sitting in a giant window pane in the Hotel Moskva, listening to Democratic Russia leaders uh, debate what they should do in response to the tragedies uh, in the Baltic uh, republics back then in January 1991, and what kind of demonstration they should do and not, and who should be there. They eventually did a massive demonstration, and if you go and you look at the photos, you will see flags from all you know, of the democratic forces from throughout the Soviet Union, including very prominently Estonian flags. I was just looking at the photos last week. And the, the reason I say that is because it, it has been my theory, though I, I embrace it with less vigor today than before, that uh, a democratic regime in Moscow 
and democratic forces, and that, that moment really captured it for me. These were Russians, ethnic Russians, demonstrating against the Kremlin's use of force. Think about that, okay? There were ethnic Russians doing this. They weren't, they weren't ethnic Ukrainians. They weren't ethnic Georgians. They were Russians, some of whom you know well. Uh, and their theory was, we want to be democracy. We want to collapse this thing called the, the Soviet Empire. That's the word they used to use. Because we think we'll be better off, and the other countries that have been captured in this empire will be better off. Uh, I always believe that. Uh, I still believe it, but I'm less convinced of it today because of the reemergence of these more culturally derived divides. And so, uh, you know, maybe that was uh, naive to think that. Uh, I, uh, and I want to know well, your view. Well, it's quite clear what's happened in many countries, but including Russia, where it's, it seems, it's, you know, the problems that it ties in with military force and, and sort of a strong push from the government is a, is a reemergence of sort of nationalistic fervor. Ethnic we, nationalism, ethnic, I would say, yeah, yes. Well, Ruski, ni Rasiski. And that is, uh, I mean, this is why I, there's this quote that I keep getting in people, I mean, I, mean, I made, but uh, which uh, I said, 20 years ago, and then Sir Paul Goldberg keeps repeating it, which is that, God forbid that, <clears throat> I mean, that uh, the kind of Serbian nationalism ever goes into, uh, starts up in Russia, because when Russian nationalism rises without the ameliorating uh, sort of internationalist uh, influence of communism, it'll look really ugly. Uh, that is to say that if you're mobile, <laughs> I mean, there was, I mean, as, as Russia-centric as the Soviet Union was, um, kind of pure, sort of unabashed Russian derjava nationalism was, was, was suppressed. I mean, yes. uh, they were even called dissidents, some of them, I yes. mean, who were kind of very, uh, people like Lev Gomelyov and these yep. people who were sort of in the, the right-wing fringe, they too were uh, sort of suppressed or repressed in a way. Because of the transnational... Right, uh, I mean, aspirations was, yeah. of the communist movement. Right. right. Well, today that's gone, and today what we see rather is, uh, I mean, just full-blown, blatant Russian nationalism, uh, which is not all. I mean, it's not directed all from above. I mean, it is. First yeah. time I noticed this, I had, a, I had an argument with Strobe Talbot in about '96, when uh, I was said, "Look, they're." This, the kind of uh, bashing that they're doing against the Russians doing against the Baltic states is like really beyond all sort of reason. And he says, "Don't worry, they're just—it's just for domestic political reasons." And I said, "But Strobe, what are we heading toward if the way to get popularity in a country is to be xenophobic? I mean, that's not a good sign." Now back then, it was fairly mild compared to where we are today. And clearly, they are making a very strong. I would say what they've basically done is they've 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 taken Sam Huntington, um, sort of view of sort of culture of civilizations, uh, which they first bashed in the 1990s, and following the kind of like we're all you know we can all be Democrats, and now turned it around, saying you know without actually referencing. Uh, uh, Huntington, especially, but you know, now we are a separate civilization. We are different. We are, of course, better. 
And that is, um, I mean, that's something which I think scares a lot of people. Right. Uh, and it's, um, well, there's a blessing in disguise, I think, for countries like yours, uh, which is when the transnational piece is not there and the attractiveness, there is, there is an ideology called Putinism, I would say, that they try to propagate, and maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. So there is still, in my view, let me put it differently, there is still in his view, he's a guy I've dealt with uh, you know, up close and personal, probably more than most in this room. Uh, he believes he's in an ideological struggle with the West. He believes that. We're kind of, not you and not me, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, on the vanguard of, of trying to talk about this, but a lot of people in the West don't think that way. They don't think that there is a threat there. So I want to put that in parentheses and come back to it. But the, the upside, and I noticed this when I was in the government, uh, when we first started to have debates about contingency plans for some of our new NATO uh, allies, and I'm going to be careful about what I talk about so I don't want to cross over into the classified. But um, uh, the upside is that when the, the definition of Russianness becomes more acute, then those that are outside of that also becomes better defined, right? So the other is more, better understood. Uh, and I remember this debate back in 2009, actually the first time you met with uh, President Obama. Uh, and we were having debates about what is Europe. Because remember, the Bush administration had, there were a couple of them, especially Secretary of Defense, that talked about the new Europe and the old Europe, right? Uh, whether that was good or bad, I'll let you decide, because you were in the government then, I was not. Uh, but when we came in with President Obama, that distinction for him, uh, partly because of his age, partly because he did not fight in the Cold War, partly because uh, he was not a transatlantic guy, by the way. He was a more north-south guy. So, you know, you Europeans, uh, y'all kind of look like you're Europeans to him. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But um, for him, that distinction that was so important to those that, that had the Cold War uh, East versus West so deep in their mind, ironically, and I paradoxically in a good way, uh, he could see new Europe is just actually pretty old Europe. And, and I remember him joking about that from time to time about Estonia. Uh, you know, seems like a pretty old, old European capital to me uh, compared to some of the other places he'd traveled in his life. So, um, uh, and you know, maybe that's an upside. I, I don't know how you think about it, but there's the, every now and then when I give talks about Putin and Russia, uh, people talk about, well, in fact, I just gave a talk a few days ago, is Putin trying to recreate the Soviet Union? Uh, my answer to that is generally no, although we can debate what that is. But would he ever dare think about recreating the entire Soviet Union? The answer to that is absolutely not because of that distinction, because of the, the rebirth or re-understanding for outsiders of the Europeanness of places like Estonia. Well, I would, yeah, I'd, I tend to agree. I mean, basically, if um, I mean, we have ended up. Our security today is based, I would say, largely on a perverse version of the old Clinton line that if we're all inextricably intertwined economically, we won't go to war. Right. 
The problem, I would say, yes, that is true. In fact, the reason why Russia will not invade at least you know, sort of Western Europe, old Europe, yeah. <laughs> and probably not us, because we, I mean, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are in NATO, are in the European Union, is that the real motivating force for not invading is that there is no rule of law in Russia, and you have to launder your money somewhere where there is rule of law. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, it's, are we on the record? No. Oh, okay, all right, just to check. <laughs> wait, I thought I, I <laughs> wait, I'm on the record. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, yeah. you know, this is. Uh, <laughs> not a revolution. No, Fair point. It's, I mean, it's right. I mean, I'm not. I, I no longer speak. I'm ex ex office. Yes. So. Yes. No, you but seriously, you I mean, if you look at all of the money that is being laundered, I mean, there's a whole problem for the West. But I mean, in London, New York, Miami, Cyprus. Uh, I mean, why are they doing this? I mean, this goes back to Richard Pipes's book, Property and Freedom, I guess, where yep. he was uh, talking about the tradition of rule of law in, in well, he brought the example of, you know, the Queen of, uh, Queen of England in you know, 1500 or something decided to chop off your head because she didn't like you, that yes, that would happen, but your family still kept the property, and in fact, you know, your, you know, your, your descendants would get it. Whereas in Russia, if the czar decided to cut your head off, then basically it also meant you were completely, I mean, dispossessed. Right. Uh, so there is, and he brings it down to this lack of property rights in Russia, which continues to this day. I mean, Khodorkovsky was stripped of everything. Uh, I mean, you see all these cases, you know, every year we get a couple of cases where someone has just decided, okay, now he's on the outs and we're also going to confiscate his property. So this is why you have so much money. And I guess the recent, most recent calculations are half of the wealth of Russia is parked abroad. And I'm not, I didn't that, know that. That's, wow, that's a big number. That's, it's huge. Yeah. And it's on Some top of it's parked on uh, uh, streets not too far from here, by the way. Okay. Um, that's, but, I would, but the point of this Sand is that Road. you're not going to want to invade those countries. Uh, right. And, you're, and if you're a friend, I mean, if you wouldn't have that much money to park abroad unless you're already a friend of the big guy or right. the little guy. It's a good point. Uh, so I think that that part is safe. I mean, I think the problem lies more on our side in which, uh, you know, despite the very strong money laundering uh, re regulations put in place after 9-11, it isn't really followed up on this money and you have all of these shell companies buying buying real estate all over, which leads to the perversion that the man in the Russian parliament, you would know his name, who led the fight against, or to, to ban adoptions of Russian children by... Astaka, uh, that's his name, yeah. He owns a, well, at that time, valued at that time, a $2.9 million condo in Miami. Yep. Uh, I mean, this is... Uh, and, of course, the biggest mafioso in Russia, whose last name is Mogilevich, um, I don't know his first name, but anyway, he, his sort of consigliere, the sort of the mafia, his uh, lieutenants actually bought apartments in Trump Tower in New York. So, I mean, and you can do all this through shell companies. Right. And the same thing, London is called Londonograd. Right. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, this, so we're, we're abetting yeah. this. Uh, yeah, I think we're that's We're abetting right. this stuff. Uh, but but that also is our protection. So in this perverse version of Clinton's view of the of economic ties keeping everything safe, that will keep us safe. On the other hand, where the problem lies in is that 
any kind of moral superiority of democracy and free and fair elections is something that's absolutely disputed. And I think the motivating force of a lot of the attacks we've seen is to discredit, discredit the entire idea of electoral democracy, free and fair elections, you know, the idea being, oh, you know, we're all just as bad. That's and, right. And this, and where to come back to the Baltic states, a lot, I mean, the first place where all of this disinformation began, uh, which is now we see everywhere, uh, I mean, in the West, uh, it began actually with our countries because they started sort of spreading lies and they, and it, it took a while for the West to understand there were lies and they saw that it was, and the Russians saw, this is great because every time we say something completely wrong, these poor little jerks over there in the Baltic states have to go and, you know, jump through hoops to prove that it's a lie. And then, right. and I remember doing that. Yeah, you know, I do too. I remember you doing it. Yeah, and so. things were made up. And then the State Department and the Auswärtigesamt in Germany would say, "Well, we received this complaint for the Russians. You know, what are you saying?" It's like, <laughs> but you go and prove. Now, you know, it was extended. I mean, in the last three, four years, it has been extended to the West. Uh, throughout the West, I mean, from Finland down to Spain, uh, it's, it's there, not to mention here in the U.S., uh, because they saw it was an effective policy. And it has been effective, let's face it. It, w yeah. it worked. It works. Uh, it's interesting about the integration of corruption um, uh, as a stabilizing force. <laughs> but that then leads me to, to ask you back. I mean, so... So uh, there's a lingering legacies and path dependencies of how things get set up. Uh, you know, when I was a student here at Stanford, uh, I was an undergraduate here, and my uh, honors thesis was about Soviet interventions in Eastern Europe, right? And so I talked about Hungary 56, Czechoslovakia 68, and then tried to explain why they didn't uh, intervene in Poland AD 81. And we had a very, you know, Eastern Europe was a, a, a place that we studied. My, my supervisor, for those of you who remember him, was Alex Dolan and Alex George. And, and that was a, a very set place in everybody's minds here. Uh, tell me where that is going. Obviously, uh, that's changed. But, but by the way, we still have a center for Russian and Easter. Is, is Yovana here? Uh, center for, and I, I stumble on it because we've changed it a few times, but we have a center for Russian and East European and Eurasian studies. And, we, and then we also have a Europe center at FSI. Why is that? <laughs> that is really bizarre to me because that seems like a legacy that we need to tackle. Uh, it's bizarre to me too. Well, so, let's change uh, that. Like, Mike, let, let's, uh, let, we need, all right, like, we, well that's, well, that's where my question was going. So, uh, you know, so on the one hand, that's a legacy from the past. On the other hand, and now I, I want to hear your views on this, like, as you rightly described in the beginning, you have these uh, super performers, I would say. Uh, you know, um, the first really interesting piece of work I read on it was your son's honors thesis for me back in 2007. I abandoned him uh, midstream to go work in the government. But, but you know, there was a, a time in the post study of post-communism when we looked at all these countries together and then we tried to explain variation. As you rightly pointed out, there is a group 
that outperformed even Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, and Slovakia, by the way. That was not apparent a decade ago. But now this new grouping is outperforming on liberal democracy, folks just, just to a little bit down on the map. And then the farther down you get in the map, and, and the Balkans, uh, that used to be grouped as Eastern Europe and used to be grouped as part of the communist bloc. Uh, talk about a lot of variation. There's a lot of variation there. And it, it, it be I begin to wonder, uh, will there be these groupings will solidify over time? And I say it in part because the grouping uh, that we've been talking about, where you're from, seems most immune to me from Russian intervention. As I look around the Balkans, without naming countries, although maybe we should and could, Serbia. Uh, well, then it, then it looks like a lot more play. Montenegro clearly attempted coup, in fact. Yes, now a NATO member, by the way. Yeah. So that is a disturbing thing. Uh, disturbing to me in that the, the Montenegro and Estonia are pretty far away geographically, and I would say pretty far away in many ways. Uh, uh, and they're far away in one other way. When I go and give talks about this subject, uh, uh, even at Stanford, but especially in other places, and I ask people, who can name me the country that last joined NATO? No, all, virtually nobody can. It's Montenegro. Uh, and then I say, now I don't want to really be a jerk, but uh, I wonder how many people in the room could even find Montenegro on a map. And then I remind people, we are committed, we Americans and you Estonians are committed to defend Montenegro uh, because of our Article 5 commitments and NATO. And that begins to worry me that Montenegro doesn't look that much, and I don't know Montenegro very well, you know the place a lot better than I. Uh, that separation in Europe suggests there's a, they're pretty different than, than uh, the Baltic Nordic region. Well, there, I mean, there's a there's part of a larger thing, which is, I don't know, I think sort of remotely tied to Huntington, but more, I mean, it's, it's, it's that long-term history actually has a longer-term effect than you would initially suppose. Uh, you know, there's this uh, great study, came about 25 years ago by Robert Putnam at Harvard called Making Democracy Work. And East he, versus, uh, North versus South in Italy, yeah. But he, what he studied was, I mean, he, what he was looking at was the effect of a 1970s uh, uh, governance reform in Italy, uh, which, because Italy used to be like France, where everything was decided in Rome or Paris, whereas then they decentralized and they gave, you know, pushed all of the sort of decision making uh, down to the local level. And then what happened was that it really worked in the north and it really didn't work in the South. Right. And then he traced it to, and his thesis is that it really has to do with sort of civil society, you know, in the, basically the, the 14th century. 14th century, yeah. <laughs> Very famous book, yeah. And, okay, I, I didn't want to go, you know, that make that strong a claim, but I mean, I used, did used to make the joke that, you know, when the United States kept referring to us as the FSU, as the former Soviet Union, I said, well, actually, we spent hell of a lot more time as the FSE, which is the former Swedish Empire, <laughs> um, and, which is, you know, yes. I mean, it yes. was, <laughs> people forget that Sweden used to be a horizontal country because, you know, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, 
we're all part of Sweden, and for a long, long time. Uh, and so when, in fact, after the Battle of Poltava and that silly adventurous Carl Twelfth went and lost the battle and then we went under Russian rule, um, uh, Peter the Great had a guy go and say, say like, go study the, uh, go study the, the administrative policies of how, you know, how orderly things are in what was then called Courland, Let, uh, Letland, and Estland. And the guy came back and he said, you know, the, I hate to tell you this, but the Swedish state spent more on administering you know, Letland, or what is you know, part of Latvia, than Russia spends on its entire empire. Um, is that right? Yes. I did not know that. And so, That's incredible. So what happened is you end up you end up having this, you know, which was of course aided by all of the Baltic Germans right. who were ruling Russia. But the point is that you have you have one kind of tradition of sort of you know precision and honesty, and you don't do corruption. And then you have another thing where no effort was put into it for not during the Soviet period, but for Hundreds a far long period, right. longer period of time. So when I'm not so surprised by the emergence of. Uh, of these countries who basically just kind of, you know, shrugged off. I mean, to be sort of Chinese about it, you know, in the sense of, you know, they consider they've had 200 bad years, but, you know, we'll, we'll get we're back. back. We're back on our, <laughs> I mean, we're back on our path. Right? I mean, whereas we've had 50 bad years and now we're like, okay, well, we get over that and then we'll continue going where we were meant to go. Right. And that's certainly been the kind of the impression you get. Um, so now when it comes to this, these kind of, when you talk about NATO and the sort of, okay, Montenegro, one thing that I would like people to forget about is that NATO defense, collective defense, Article 5, very important. I mean, it's what binds, in fact, the U.S. to Europe and what binds, keep, will keep NATO going for as long as it keeps going, uh, is that it doesn't immediately lead to nuclear war. And I've argued for a long time, I mean, very if Article important. 5... Right. Is that, I mean, I've argued, and I see uh, sort of smiling nods uh, in Washington and other places. I go, look, the first thing you do if, if anyone is attacked is you shut down SWIFT, which is the money transfer situation, I mean, system, uh -huh. uh, which is completely in the power of the United States and NATO countries to do, is you just turn SWIFT off, at which point the entire economy of Russia just screeches to a halt. It's kind of like there's no oil in the engine whatsoever. Nothing moves. You don't have to have nuclear war. Um, I mean, certainly, I think that's far more. In many cases, in many ways, I think it's far more of a deterrent than than uh, ICBMs. Right. Uh, and I think that we should be much more comfortable about. It. In fact, I would say that that should be part of our sort of stated reserves. Sort of, you know, swift. Right. And the other thing is really ratcheting up uh, enforcement of uh, money laundering laws and tweaking those laws where you can have things such as um, anonymous shell companies uh, that, whose actual owners are sort of Russian mafiosi buying you know, vast swaths of, of very expensive housing in London and New York, right. Miami, and as it turns out, Palo Alto. Yep. I agree. I think that's right. I, I do worry, uh, the, to come back to the, the, the geographic divides, I mean, if you project out, and it's really important to remember what you just said about Put Putnam and those long-term path dependencies, uh, you, I think you could see a pretty big split uh, 
you know, the, I don't want to get ahead of my skis, but depending on how Russia develops over the next 50 years, you could see uh, relationships with Balkan states becoming much stronger and somehow that just, you know, peeling away from Well, that's certainly the, the case. And I know that, uh, in fact, the, uh, there's, a, there's actually a sort of a peninsula in Greece called Mount Athos, which were all different orthodox uh, uh -huh. Orthodox, uh, I mean, whatever they are called. I mean, the units. I mean, patriarchates. Or, right. Or Orthodox have you know big monasteries, and and the one for Russia is there. It's very, very, very rich. Yes. And um, you know, and Putin went there without a visa because he was like, he just went by boat because he went to the peninsula. So well, there's one downside of that. I'm, I'm speaking of the Balkans, but there's another piece I wanted to add, which is as this region becomes better defined, there's two negative things I think one needs to at least think about. One is um, that do the ties of a pan-European identity weaken? So that's a question to you. Um, I, I don't know. I can see upside and downside to that. Um, as I think about other countries in Europe that are wrestling with their European identity. Um, there is one I know, though, that, that we're, uh, those that are still left in the orbit of Russia that worry about it, and that's countries like Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, I remember the first time I was in Georgia, and they, they told me that, you know, you're in Europe now. Uh, you're in a European state. And they go to great lengths, I don't know if there are any Georgians in the room, to try to remind uh, those of us who are not as familiar with the Caucasus, at least I'm not, uh, of their European uh, history, of their European ties, and that they aim and aspire to be part of Europe. They're in a much worse neighborhood even than yeah, the, the ones we've been talking about. Um, and then Ukraine is in this uh, a place, uh, I was just in Ukraine about three weeks ago, uh, obviously in flux about their Europeanness because uh, they think a lot more about it today than ever before. Um, thousands of Ukrainians have died uh, to be, uh, keep the aspiration alive of being part of Europe. Um, and on the one hand, uh, they want to be more like you, uh, and they take great, uh, they're inspired by that. On the other hand, uh, your success sometimes makes the separation between them and you seem insurmountable. Uh, and do they then fall into this never-never land, which is been... That's a big worry. Well, the, the, to answer the first part, I'd say that, uh, you know, sort of, thanks to Brexit, I think that European, sort of European, sort of pro-European feelings across the board are far stronger than they were. Good point. Uh, because, and every so the reaction day after it. day, if you're looking at the mess of Brexit, uh, I mean, this just reconfirms. And we see you know, across the board, and I know in my country, we had a pretty big rise in uh, support. I mean, we, we, we've never been really anti-European, but there was a sort of like, I don't know answer was okay. kind of getting bigger and bigger. And now it's 81%, you know, say, full steam ahead on Europe. 
Uh, in terms we can of thank the Brits for that, for their stupidity. Well, well, uh, uh, by the way, we're learning more about what the Russians did in right, the Brexit. Right. Thirteen thousand. Uh, so maybe we should thank Putin. <laughs> Twitter accounts. Thirteen thousand Twitter accounts promoting Brexit in, in 2016 before the referendum, which had just come out. So yeah. Uh, so I'm not worried about that, and I don't see, I mean, in fact, we're kind of proud in our, the Baltic countries of being kind of like, we're the leaders. Not, we're, well, just being liberal democracies and not having kind of like being some, like some of those other countries. Right. Where I worry about, I mean, the problem with Ukraine and, um, and Georgia uh, has been that they for so long didn't make the effort. And people forget that actually, you know, it was pretty teeth-gnashingly difficult in, from like 91 to... In the period 91 to 2004, when we joined the European Union and we joined NATO, I mean, all three countries really, really busted their... Yeah, yeah. right. Um, worked very hard. Yes, we worked very hard, often taking political decisions that were very unpopular uh, in terms of trade, in, ter I mean, in all kinds of areas. Right. Where, and, and, and we knew that it wouldn't suffice to say, oh, no, we can't do that. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, whereas during that, first of all, during that entire time, neither Ukraine nor Georgia, for reasons that didn't have to do with the Ukrainians, but rather their leaderships, didn't do anything. Didn't do anything. So they, I mean, they were, they kept, you know, we were moving ahead, they were falling behind. <clears throat> and since then, I would say the problem with the country, since both went more democratic, is uh, a, f a certain fragility of the state that, that at least is brought as an excuse for not really implementing very tough reforms. Right. And so, um, you know, Europe as an idea, or as, you know, Timothy Garden Nash, who talks about how people were demonstrating for the idea of Europe. Um, that's very strong, but then the willingness to make the next leap, which, you know, is that, okay, well, we want the idea of Europe, but, you know, <laughs> maybe I'll, you know, sort of lose job security because of that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, having been one in the government and having gone through the, you know, being the target of rotten tomatoes because, you know, sort of reforms cost and right. pol at political cost, that they're not doing that. And, uh, you know, clearly, I mean, you can say for Ukraine right now, well, they have a war, but there's still things you can do. I mean, an yeah. anti-corruption court seems to be kind of like a, a basic thing you ought to do. And... And the political will is, has not been there. So that's where I get worried, because if the longer you put off reforms, the more, the more vulnerable you become. Uh, whereas for us, you can, I can see over, the, you know, over the, the, the past two decades, you know, like a greater, inc I mean, this increasing belief in, con in rule of law and constitutionalism that initially was kind of like a weird idea, but now people sort of internalize it and... You know, just like here, people say, I will defend the Constitution, except some don't, but anyway. Um, but it, we see that developing in, uh, in these countries, whereas I don't see that in, uh, in like, Georgia, Ukraine, unfortunately. Right. And it really comes down to the political courage of the leaderships. Big question. Can I ask one more? I don't know when Mike wants to go to the audience. But we can have I to get back to the Baltics. Well, I want to get back to the Baltics. And so we're comparing the Baltic region uh, to other regions, uh, but I want to ask you two questions. One I get asked all the time, and one you alluded to, but I want to hear a longer answer, which is uh, within the region we're talking about, uh, 
there has been less, it seems to me, rise of these populist movements. So the obvious question is why compared to other places. And two, uh, uh, whenever I'm talking about Russia, um, uh, you know, my stump speech on Russia, I always get a question about will Russia invade Estonia? And I tell them no. But then they say, well, what about Narva? Will they, will they do a little green men kind of operation there? And shouldn't we be worried about that? And the, the, answer that specific question, but it's the larger question of within these countries, not everybody has the same identity formation yeah. yet. And where do you see that going in the long term? Well, was just a, there was just a, a Russian from Petersburg just wrote a long article about visiting Narva. You know, everyone oh, I missed the, it. I'll, I'll okay. send it to you. I mean, okay. it was basically, I mean, in the West, it's always like, is Narva next? Because it sort of yep. alliterates. Yep. Uh, but, he, he, <laughs> but he went into, he did this whole thing, and, you know, he walks around, and he got the same response that sort of serious journalists, what are you, nuts? You know, I mean, you, we don't want to be there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and this was one of the things that it came out of the Ukraine crisis. People say, well, uh, you know, what, what happens if they do it there? And it's like, the difference is, like, the average salary of a miner in the Donbass was like 250 uh, $250, the average salary of a Russian miner in Northeast Estonia was like $1,500 to $2,500 a month. Uh-huh. Uh, and they send their kids, I mean, you can work anywhere in Europe, and you send your kids to school and pay, you know, virtually nothing in Europe to go to university. Why would they want to join Russia? Right. You know, I mean, right. and the kind of, if there's anyone who makes fun of Russians in sort of politically incorrect ways, it's the Russians. I mean, in Estonia. In Narva, or in Estonia. I mean, yeah, because yeah. they see it up close and personal, and they right. sort of view Russia as a place to get really cheap cigarettes and gasoline and, and alcohol. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's, it's quite different. Um, I would say, I mean, one of the things I really want to, one thing, I, I'm just writing a piece on this right now, but this, the little green scenario, men scenario, I mean, it's one of these things, it works once. It won't work again because, I mean, this is the problem of generals it. always fighting the last war. Right. I mean, and there's even a general named Sheriff from uh, the UK who actually wrote an entire book about little green men coming into Latvia in this case. So, like, wait a minute, no. Uh, you know, our head of the military said, somebody, he was asked, what happens little green men come? He goes, we shoot them. <laughs> 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 And the problem is, and what I, my response to that when he said this was that, well, you know, moose and elk can't see color, so also if you do go hunting in the fall season, wear one of these orange things over you because if you're walking around in military uh, camouflage suits uh, with a gun in your hand in the woods, it may not be healthy for you. And so it's not going, it's not, it will not happen that way. All to, I mean, besides, we've seen a far more you know, we could talk about for hours about this, but I mean, a broad attack across the board, U.S. elections, French elections, Brexit. You know, they've hacked into the Bundestag. They've hacked into the Italian foreign ministry. They've even hacked into the world, I mean, the same group, all of these. I mean, there's always been one identifiable group. has even hacked into the World Anti-Doping Agency. So, I mean, this is, we're facing, you know, a full sort of broad-scale attack uh, on our institutions uh, in ways that you don't, you don't need little green men. Right. You don't, need, you don't right. need an army, right. you, or you need an army of a different type. And, and this is where I think we're only now beginning to wake up to what ha happened in the U.S. election. Yeah. 
the French were uh, having learned from what happened in the U.S. elections, took some precautionary measures. So, for example, they figured they would be hacked, or the President Macron, I mean, Emmanuel Macron's server would be hacked. And so they filled it with all kinds of really fake stuff, um, <laughs> which was obviously fake, you know, sort of clearly forged signatures, and then well, clearly they were hacked, and then they were doxxed, as it were, and published. And so they would just say, wait a minute, you know, that's so clearly a forgery. So they kind of beat them on that round, which was not what happened with uh, Hillary Clinton. Right. Uh, but, I mean, this is the kind of, these are the kinds of things we have to worry about in terms of uh, undermining our democratic institutions, our elections. Is that a, a different kind of attack? It's not, it's not going to be, you know, uh, an armata tank right. moving across uh, some border. Are we... Uh, I know, well, we kept, you know, this is the problem. Russia is always the main topic. Nordic Baltic, I would say, we're going to have an entire conference on this uh, next June, here, in fact, June 1 and 2. Uh, so please come to that, and then you can hear more about it. I basically see what's going to happen is a, is a dramatic increase in integration of the uh, Nordic Baltic area. Uh, this has to do with a number of factors. First of all, the increasing wealth of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. The fact that in one of the sort of one area where Europe is quite lagging compared to many other places, um, which is digitization, this area is far ahead of most, much of Europe and is moving ahead. And so I would see that in, in you know, in the the problem with a lot of this is that we all are kind of like-minded, but there's one more country that was like-minded with us in this regard, and that's the UK, and we're, no, we, we're, lo and we're losing. Well, right. yeah. And so in terms of have political clout, it's actually gone down. I mean, the kind of the, the, the liberal trade, open uh, approach of you know, the Nordic countries and the Baltic countries uh, is considerably weakened with the departure of the UK because the more protectionist and statist uh, countries of the EU sort of south. Right. The balance uh, of power shifted. It, yeah. And that is, that's to our loss. But I do anticipate a far greater integration than we see it all the time. I actually did what my, uh, one thing I did when I was in the European Parliament was I pushed through something which is called a macro-regional policy which is a, a Baltic Sea strategy, which was then, uh, I left the parliament, and then when I left right after that, it, they actually voted and passed it. Um, and that is forces precisely just building connections between uh, the countries on the Baltic littoral. The real question that comes, I would argue, which we don't have any time to do at all, at all today, but question is, what will happen to the space as a security region? And right now, without Sweden and Finland in NATO, uh, it's one situation. Soon as, soon as if, I mean, if Sweden and Finland join NATO. And what's the probabilities of that, in your view, in the next five to 10 years? Well, the Russians keep behaving the way they're behaving. It, they increase all the time. I mean, in fact, there is a plurality of support for joining NATO in Sweden today. Right. It's not. Which has I mean, never not, happened before. Right? right. It's not a majority, but it is a. There is a slightly higher percentage of people in Sweden in favor of joining NATO, but it still is not up to the. 
But I would say that, you know, you completely change the security situation when, you know, I mean, all these silly questions about defense depth and all of this stuff, that all disappears because then you become, the Baltic Sea becomes a NATO lake. Right. Right now it is already an EU lake and that has tremendous impact on cleaning up the Baltic, for example. Because we all agree that we're going to do this and even if the Russians don't follow the things, you know, you know, the rest of the countries around the Baltic literal all do, and in fact, it has had all kinds of benefits. If we, the security situation, I mean, which the current one, which you have like, you know, Baltics are kind of hard to get to, and there's, uh, yep. you know, there's, they're a little almost cut off, and there's, you know, Finland, Sweden up there, and what are we gonna do? As soon as these two countries join in, it is a lake, and it is, you know, we just fly around, do what we want. <laughs> be happy. Uh, I mean, the, this is, of course, why so much effort is put into intimidating Sweden and Finland right, right now. Right now, by Putin, right. Uh, but we could go on for a long time on this. I think that uh, I keep, I get the message that we're supposed to open it up for questions, which I guess will give more, us more chances to talk about various topics. So let's give our uh, conversationalists a big hand for their You're welcome now to start lining up at the microphones, and I will start uh, 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 addressing those who get to the microphone first and then switch to the other microphone. So there you go. You're the first one up. Uh, just going back to that integration issue with the Nordics, in the 30s, there were ideas of the same, and those fell off because it was impossible to get five Nordics and three Baltics into step. They, there were different threat scenarios, different national interests, and it was impossible to reconcile them. So what are the chances now? Well, I, I actually I mean, you glibly said, you know, NATO late, just as uh, soon as Sweden and Finland join in, but I don't see that happening well, from the Swedish policy. I actually do, Sweden. but uh, more from Sweden. Uh, you know, I mean, after the Good Friday incident uh, where the... Uh, Swedish Air Force didn't scramble when it was attacked. I mean, I think from there on in, we've been seeing. Well, I know a fair bit about the 30s thing. It was basically uh, Lars Friedan, actually, who was, was this Carl Bildt special assistant on Russian troop patrols in the 90s, looked at um, Swedish, Swedish security policy thinking in the 19, late 20s, 19, uh, early 30s. And they decided that, uh, given the Russia as a threat, that they would do everything possible to integrate with Finland, but they lack the resources to do that with the Baltic countries. And so but they did pursue a strong integration policy towards Finland at the time. Of course, Sweden today, um, and I think somewhat differently in Finland, sees you know, what happened when the Baltic countries became independent. The, the amount of time, it, warning time you'd have for an attack from the Soviet Union from an Estonian island was nine minutes. Uh, an attack, a bombing attack on uh, today is probably 30. I mean, that's the difference. And so, um, I mean, there. this is why Sweden has been keenly interested in uh, the security of the Baltic countries, because you know, we're in between the potential source of attack. And, uh, and since we haven't, we Estonians have not attacked Sweden since, uh, we raised the, the capital of Sikton on like 11.95 or something. <laughs> you, you still remember? But they still remember. <laughs> he still remembers. 
So I, I, I think we're moving in that direction. It will take a while. I mean, but I think that um, actually I could caution more about kind of a certain degree of uh, hubris in that there's this kind of thinking in Sweden and Finland that, well, if there's really a problem, we'll join right away. No, that's not, it, do, it doesn't, it, you don't join, it doesn't happen that way, first of all, anyway. And secondly, you will be, you, you will see all kinds of voices, especially from some southern members of NATO saying what, you know, is this really the time to do it? We have enough tension as it is. Maybe this wouldn't join, having Finland and Sweden join be too provocative a step to really swallow at this point. I mean, that will become a big argument. Thanks. Um, I'm just going to get into the weeds in Estonian politics for a moment as it relates to the interplay between uh, economics and identity with the decision-making of Russian voters. Um, so there was recently local elections in Estonia where the Reform Party uh, put up a poster which essentially said something along the lines of the Estonian-speaking voter will vote for the Reform Party, the non-Estonian-speaking voter will vote for the Center Party, the traditional party of the Russian minority. Um, yet at the same time, there have been sort of leaps and bounds in Estonian politics whereby Russians have been represented across all major parties and in government. Um, and as you've said, the economic situation is drastically different once you cross the Narva River. So how has the political decision-making of, of the Russian populace in Estonia changed over the years? How have Estonian politics impacted um, those decision-making uh, processes? And where is this headed in the future? Um, what are the Russians doing next in Estonia? <laughs> Great questions. And those are all to you, my friend. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what we've seen, uh, precisely what we wanted to see, is that may, you will, I mean, people will, I mean, the Russian voters uh, will de-ethnicize mm -hmm. and actually gravitate towards political positions that are you know, that they find appealing. So, I mean, at least when it comes to economic policy and various other policies as well. Uh, offsetting that has been the rise of an extreme right-wing nationalist party in Estonia, which is, uh, I mean, fortunately it's small, and they actually did pretty badly in their local elections. So, uh, you know, that gives me hope. Uh, but, you know, how it goes, it's hard to tell. What is clear is that irredentism is not on the table, and it is, it has been attempted. I mean, the Russian, the Russian, Russia, Russia has attempted to foment it. It has not worked. Uh, they clearly are looking for opportunities to stir things up, but it seems that they're more occupied with Catalonia right now than they are with, with us. Um, and I think the Russian voters. I mean, given that you know the. The, uh, the average salary in Russia is uh, lower than the, than the pension of a babushka. I mean, the average salary in Russia is lower than the, the, the pension of a babushka in Estonia. There's not much movement, sort of like, let's, as I mentioned, with the same thing with the miners. I mean, the economics of, of our region and the opportunities of being a member of the European Union are so great that uh, you know there may be differences on you know concrete issues, uh, and it's also interesting to note, for example, that while Estonians tend to be fairly liberal on topics like gay marriage, the I mean the the Russian population is 
vehemently opposed. I mean, across the board, all age groups, 99% against it, whereas Estonians under 40 are kind of like, nah, you know, who cares? Uh, so, I mean, there are other issues which really don't follow ethnic lines, but, I mean, but you notice, I mean, it's, they're not ethnically based issues, but there are clearly different cultural and ethno-cultural differences that have an impact on politics that you would not think would be, you know, you don't go that, oh, the Russians are like that, or the Estonians are like that, but it turns out they are. Thank you. Thank you. I'm from Lithuania. So my question, I'm actually very grateful for you for a positive view on the Baltics and kind of very refreshing and nice to see that because being there you hear a lot of negative. But coming back to things that worry me and the questions about that, demographics, you know, especially like Lithuania and it was emigration. We really have a pretty, I would say, dire demographic situation. How you, where you see that going? And the kind of related question to that is, you know, is there a too small of a country that can be successful when, when it's becoming too small in terms of demographics that you can be successful? And then second, totally different question. Actually, I don't worry about Russia being too strong and being a threat. I'm actually worrying about Russia disintegrating and be, being a threat and having a Crimea type or, or, or Ossetia situation to, to rally support against, around the leader. And, and that's where I guess it's getting really messy with Baltics. Well, I mean, one of the most successful countries in the world is Singapore, so I'm not worried about size. Iceland is doing really well, right? So, I mean, there are only 300,000. So the size is, I mean, especially within the European Union, uh, you, uh, the size becomes less important. I mean, may, except for maybe voting weight, but, you know, you're not, you know. I would also go full steam ahead on robotics, you know, frankly, that's, I mean, the demographic situation in Japan is far worse, even though they're, you know, 120 million, but they're, they're really not replacing themselves um, uh, to the point where it, there, there was an article in, the, in, the, in Foreign Affairs a couple of months ago, the most overworked people in the world are Japanese because they don't get to sleep anymore because they're working 80 hours a week <laughs> on average. Uh, but I would say whether we really have, it, it should give us a more positive view of robotization and automation in our countries. Um, so I, size, as I said, I think a lot of those problems are ameliorated by membership in the European Union. And again, I mean, who is, what is the most, the most successful country in the European Union, at least in terms of GDP per capita, is Luxembourg, which has, you know, basically it's got 600,000 people living in it, uh, of whom a third are not even citizens. I mean, this is because they don't, they're not Luxembourg citizens. I think, you know, they're, you know, they're far, their GDP per capita is far higher than anyone else's. So I'm not worried about the size part. Um, you know, we can do a lot of other dumb things, but, um, <laughs> but that, that's not a problem. On the, other, on the other side, well, I mean, chaos in Russia was one of the reasons why, in fact, the Baltic countries um, became independent the first time around, because, you know, they, they we don't want to be a part of that you know, chaos over there, and we don't want to be part of this kind of lawlessness. Uh, the Estonian army was based on, uh, came, uh, was created by, uh, by people coming together in southern Estonia saying we have to defend ourselves against marauding, deserting Russian soldiers, and that ultimately became the Estonian army, you know, many years later. But So I, I'm not worried. I mean, I think we'll take care of that. We have NATO, too. It's okay. 
To be clear, you're talking about the Russian Revolution, the period of the Russian Revolution, yeah. not 1991. No, no, I, uh, no, I was talking about, yes. I was that wasn't about, clear, I'm glad you put it I was it talking out. about actually, I was talking about actually 1917 already with the, uh, with, uh, with the separate peace made by Lenin followed by the desertion of uh, Russian troops, for example, Riga. I mean, they made a real mess of Riga as soon as the Russians stopped fighting the Germans. We are on the 100th anniversary. Yesterday it started? Yesterday, and furthermore, there's a wonderful exhibit in the Cantor Center uh, co-sponsored by the Hoover Institution with a lot of their materials oh. on the very 100th anniversary. It's well uh, recommended to you all to visit and, and enjoy. There's some, some public presentations too. I don't recall when they all are, but definitely a great exhibit. Any other questions? Yes. Hi. Um, so my question somewhat relates to the demographic issue brought up in the previous question. So for Central and Western European countries for the past few years, uh, immigration from the Middle Eastern and North African countries, whether it's on a refugee basis or on an economic migrant basis, has been one of the salient issues so far. Uh, this really hasn't impacted Estonia as much as it has, say, Sweden. Um, but in the long run, as these populations integrate into the larger European Union EU sphere, uh, what are some of your views regarding that challenge? Like the examples, Iceland, for example, is that they're geographically separated. They're, they still have a growing population, which is a luxury that Estonia, at least for the past decade, has not had. Uh, has not had. Well, we're actually. I mean, our um, our migration, in migration, our migration is basically even now. There's no, there's no uh, net out migration anymore and we had a, you know, a couple hundred more people came in or came back than before. Well, certainly the, the Baltic countries, uh, all three of them, uh, have been, as opposed to sort of what is called Central Eastern Europe, has actually have been not made a big deal out of the quotas uh, that uh, the commission gave for, for uh, migration. From or rather from the ref for refugees, and we've all taken our share. Uh, the the difference between us and Sweden is that Sweden is richer and has a far has had up till now, but they have changed a far uh, more generous social welfare policy. Uh, but of course, the main goal is Germany. Uh, so I do know two cases. One was when uh, Lithuania uh, sort of. They people interview who's countries have to interview who's coming in. So they interviewed one guy, and uh, he only had one question: How far is it to Germany from Lithuania? And the other case was there was a family that was supposed to fly from, I guess, you know, either southern Italy or from uh, Greece or Turkey to Latvia, but the way to get there was via Frankfurt, and the whole family just disappeared in Frankfurt. And I mean, that if you know had. This, <laughs> He's walked out the door, right? So it's, uh, this is, um, uh, I mean, so we've been open. Uh, we have not been hostile the way and sort of anti-immigrant or anti-refugee that Central Europeans have been. Uh, but it's also, we're not highly desirable. Uh, <laughs> I think you are. Uh, <laughs> What it does show, of course, is that a lot of the, these people are, in fact, economic migrants, and rather than 
I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. my parents were refugees. They didn't pick and choose, you know. They just said, let's get the hell out of, you know, this, you know, this window of opportunity between the Nazis leaving, who they shot you if you tried to escape, and then the Soviets coming. We knew they would try to shoot you. And so they weren't really going like, you know, maybe I think I'll go to Denmark. No, I mean, they just went to where they could go. And this is, so when you start sitting there going, well, you know, I think I prefer the social welfare policy in Germany to Lithuania, yeah. Thank you. It was mentioned that the wave of uh, populism has not hit the Baltic states. Uh, I don't believe that's quite true. One is uh, populism has been strong, at least in part of the Baltics, for a long time. And uh, there is a resurgence now, I believe. And that resurgence goes together with the influence of the oligarchs of the uh, country, who, uh, if they can no longer get directly uh, elected, they drive parties and their influence gets elected. Uh, and oligarchs know how to explore, exploit populism, which is shown all over. You look at the Czech Republic, what happened uh, last week, in, in, or certainly in Ukraine. Uh, so I don't think the Baltics are exempt from that trend. I would say, I don't think any country, including this one, is exempt from populism. Uh, the difference is that uh, no one's won an election in uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, uh, well, except for maybe Paxos is kind of, a, but he, he was a crook and he, got, he lost his job right away. But basically, you don't, I mean, what you have in Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, uh, you have, you know, sort of, Governments in power, explicitly anti-immigrant, anti-EU. I mean, whereas none of the three governments in—I uh, mean, those three governments are anti-EU. Uh, they don't—they're not being anti-immigrant. I mean, it's—it's it's quite different. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all have parties like that, but they tend—they have remained, fortunately, up till now, relatively fringe. Uh, just a brief question. I wonder if uh, you had the opportunity to see last night's uh, first part of uh, Putin's revenge on the public television, and if you agree with what was said. Last night, I don't watch TV at all, so. <laughs> I saw part of it, and it was, it's fairly accurate, but there's some things they get wrong. Uh, one thing they get wrong was that Hillary Clinton was the uh, point person for the reset. Uh, that's just not true. So you asked, I told you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Hi, my name is Anna-Maja Ylimaula. I come from Finland. I'm a professor at the University of Oulu and I happen to be visiting here because my daughter is a postdoc researcher. And, uh, um, for Finland, uh, it's geography uh, that has determined our politics uh, uh, almost uh, always. And uh, now that you, I noticed that you have a celebration of the Baltic independence next year. So I would like to remind that Finland is celebrating its independence 100 years this year. So because we became independent in 
1970. December 6th, yes. Yeah, right. Uh, and, uh, and thanks uh, for a really interesting discussion. And uh, uh, what a little bit worries me is the, uh, is the pessimism uh, in your discussion or kind of uh, fear for the future. Because, um, uh, well, we are not thrilled about, about the tr Russian president, but we are not so thrilled about your president either here <laughs> right now. So, uh, so it's not just the presidents, even if uh, President Ilves happen, happened to be a really great uh, friend of Finland, and during his time our exchange, all kinds of exchange was really uh, vivid. And, and I, hope, I hope it continues now <laughs> also in future. But uh, uh, I would not regard the Baltic Sea only as a lake. Uh, some of you mentioned that it's a lake, because, uh, and it's not all about defense either. Or I don't think that security is just uh, uh, NATO or, uh, or army. Security uh, means a lot of other things. And uh, for example, in that area, so uh, I would count whole uh, Scandinavia uh, together with the uh, Baltic countries uh, to this, uh, uh, this uh, sphere of the Baltic Sea. And so it's uh, in architecture, it's in literature, it's in, in so many other things that also bring security to people in that area. So, um, and uh, I remember the time when, uh, when uh, Estonia uh, was, uh, was it uh, in the beginning of the 90s or at the end of the 80s that, uh, uh, when your independence started again, so, that uh, our president at that time, Mauno Koivisto, was a little bit hesitant about the, it was not as enthusiastic as we were as scholars who had exchanged with, uh, <laughs> with Tallinn and Tartu. So we were all thrilled about it, but, but uh, it was surprising that our uh, late president was not, uh, and I remember that he said that it's just like giving candy to one child and not the, to some of the others. And uh, I thought that it was a really strange uh, uh, remark uh, from him. Uh, but uh, now, uh, uh, I hope that uh, this, uh, whole uh, area uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, the Baltic Sea region that it can uh, provide to the rest of the world a lot of uh, new uh, ICT understanding, how to integrate all these uh, possibilities. I noticed that, uh, uh, for example, here at schools, uh, um, some things are far behind, uh, some things are way better than ours, but uh, so that we have a lot to offer. Uh, even other things than this uh, uh, membership in NATO, which eventually will evidently happen in the future. Right. Yeah. I agree. So, Finland you. gave the world Nogi and Estonia gave it Skype. I think we're doing pretty okay. <laughs> if I could just build on that, it looks like we're wrapping up. Uh, well, yeah, we but should I, wrap up. I, yeah. But, but I, have a, I have a challenge back to you on that. Yeah. So um, uh, part of, uh, and I say this now as a, somebody who's been teaching at Stanford for a while and yeah. runs a big international institute. Uh, I think we've described some fantastic success uh, from this region. Uh, yeah. Fantastic success when you think about all the other trends that are going on in the world, including, as you yeah. pointed out, in my country. My challenge back to you that care about it, you got to invest in it to make sure that, that 
people know about your success. Yeah. Uh, the Chinese come to me very often over at FSI. They want to endow chairs. They want us to build centers. We have a beautiful, beautiful place. Go see it at Peking University, at Beida, built from Chinese money in partnership with Stanford University. Yeah. Uh, because they understand, they want their model and their way of thinking and their successes to be understood by people like here in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. Now, you just heard from one of our uh, undergraduates, pretty, pretty smart kid, right? Mm -hmm. Student, I apologize. That's because of the kinds of incremental investments that we've made to create opportunities for students to go to Estonia, for, for people like President Ilvis to be here. But if you just sit on your hands and say, well, everything's great now, then you're, the, that attention will fade away. So we have, I think, and Michael, I want to thank you for your leadership in this. This is a fantastic moment. Invest in it. Invest in it so that people understand all the things that you all have been talking about. Uh, there were some historical references here today that I've, I'm a professor at Stanford, and I'm going to tell you candidly, I didn't know what you were talking about. Uh, so if I don't know what you're talking about, guess what? Most Americans don't know that history. You should invest in it now so that we, we become, and we're, we're right there, we, so we become the place that studies this region, that, that really understands this region, that has the resources and library that makes it available for our students to, to study the region. So don't help us with that, okay? Okay. All right, that's my pledge, yeah. my, okay. my commitment yeah, to you. Thank you. Sorry for the advertisement, no, 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 but no, no, I really no, I believe this. Completely agree. Estonia completely agree. is such a fantastic country. The world needs to know more about Estonia, okay? Completely agree. Thinking about buying a flat there myself. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could afford it. <laughs> so I have one final question. Is Iceland part of the Nordic-Baltic constellation that we've been talking about? Politically, yes. Um, it's, I mean, it's, there is actually a Nordic council. Right. And, that, and uh, I mean, uh, the countries there enjoy this uh, lingua sueca, which is then the, uh, their common language is Swedish. Even though in Finland, I think it's disappearing because in Finland the, the Finnish of, Swedes are a declining number. Yeah. Well, also the Finnish language, Finns, <laughs> language of knowledge, uh, la, la, knowledge of Swedish is declining, uh, and of course, um, Icelanders speak Proto Swedish. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they they branched off in like 1100, so I mean, it's kind of. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's give our pair up here a great hand. Thank you very much, Jens. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.